Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, this is the first episode in our new studio space, our new apartment we have moved into. We are still in the process, actually, um, but as you are watching this, we are on our last day. <laughs> it's pre-recorded for Sunday. And... Um, Anyway, it's been a lot of it, moving is never fun and moving um, anyway, moving is just never fun. Uh, OK, so you can see I'm sort of starting up the space here and uh, putting stuff up and all that's a little different, similar, um, but a little different from the last place. This room's actually a lot bigger. I think I'm getting a little bit more echo in here, so I'm trying to pay a little bit more attention to being closer to the microphone so we get good sound for you. Anyway, um, man, life has been way overloaded the last couple of weeks in terms of my schedule and busyness. Um, but it's finally starting to, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel on the move and um, school is going well. In fact, uh, if you look at my podcast this week, it's a shorter one and I talk here about some really big personal upheavals and changes and, and adjustments I've been making in my head uh, as part of my learning from my studies, um, from my university training. Uh, so that's going well. I think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. You know, you don't go to a university for catharsis or for, you know, for healing. But given the nature of what I'm studying and my background, it can't help but you know, the psychoeducation element of what I'm doing is a valid part of cult recovery. In fact, it's not just a valid part, it's an absolutely vital part. So, you know, while I'm not doing this program for that purpose, it has really come up in a very big way that some of the things in my past that have been messing with my head and my ability to think have been you know, kind of running up against some of the more recent, you know, stuff that I'm learning. And so anyway, I talk about this in the podcast this week. So I hope you guys will check that out. Now let's um, go ahead and get on with your questions. I did first, though, want to put in a quick plug one for um, Patreon. If you are enjoying my channel, you know, that kind of thing, then consider joining me on Patreon. And two, I have not mentioned in a really long time, but there is still that critical merchandise site, and the link is below. It is a Spreadshirt site where you can get cups, mugs, hats, etc., shirts, and not this, not this one. I didn't make this one, but I have made a lot, and uh, they are there on that site for you to check out if you're interested in such things. And spreading the good cheer of critical thinking and, you know, Scientology goofiness and stuff like that. All right, guys, let's get on with your questions now. Bruno Savoy, I have a question about past lives. I really want to understand how people start to think about past lives. For example, if you asked me to go back earlier and earlier in my memory, no matter how much I tried, I would not remember anything before this life. I could make something up, but I would never, ever fool myself that this is real. I understand that maybe Scientology says that anything you think of is actually something you lived before and or those may be the memories of your BTs. Please let me know if this is wrong. Perhaps these explanations are how they get around the problem of making it up, quote unquote, but I still don't understand how you can go about looking into your past lives. 
For example, Grant Cardone says that he knows he is an immortal spiritual being because he went back and looked in his past lives. He knows who he was, what he did. Can you help me understand this process? Nothing is impossible in life, but I feel like I would never be able to convince myself that what I am making up as I go are my past lives. Thanks you for sharing your thoughts. Bruno is a great question, and uh, really it does have to do with engaging imagination and then reframing it as reality. That's really about the simplicity of what's going on in Scientology auditing with past lives. The way it works, or and you've hinted at and seem to have looked into this and understand that there are different explanations or ways that they can talk about it. But in an auditing session, let me tell you my subjective experience of it or how I have also, as an auditor, dealt with pre-clears who I was auditing when it came to past life stuff. And really, this is a matter of a viewpoint indoctrination, you could say. You know, when I first went into Scientology and was doing auditing, I, I wasn't, you know, jumping into past lives or thinking that that was really a thing either. But what happens is during the auditing session, you're asked questions or, or given commands, and those are going to take you through a subjective you know, memory process of going back in time through painful incidents of stress, trauma, pain, unconsciousness, et cetera. That's your, that's your kind of ideal picture of what you're doing with Dianetic auditing and with quite a bit of Scientology auditing. You're looking for bad stuff that's happened in the past, and you go back and sort of revivify or relive it. And um, and that's what you do. And the and the idea is that by going over and over these things in your past, you will release the trauma or charge or anxiety or however you want to refer to it um, that is pent up in that. And by releasing that pent up energy, it frees up your you know that you're no longer stressed or anxious or you know freaked out or whatever about that past thing, and it will no longer have any power or hold over you. This is not how our memories work. This is not how our brain works. And this, this, this uh, sort of idea of how you go back and, and relive things and, and, re, and you know, take away stress or trauma, that's not, that's not how this works, okay? We've, we've, we've learned a lot since 1950 when Hubbard wrote Dianetics about the brain and the mind and how it deals with trauma and stress and memory, especially. We've, we've even done a podcast here where I interviewed a neuroscientist about memory, specifically so we could talk about some of this stuff. Um, now, with the past lives, I just wanted to kind of put that whole disclaimer there because I, I don't want people thinking that this stuff is, is useful, <laughs> you know, because it's not. Uh, it's the exact opposite of useful. Okay, now, as far as the past life stuff goes, what you do is you develop it like a Polaroid picture, if you all remember those things, right? There's those little, you know, those little pictures you wave in the air uh, that would come out of the Polaroid cam and they'd be instant, you know? Um, you, you know, you find, um, okay, let's, let's, let's look at a real example. Let's say that you have um, a Dianetic session where you have recalled a time where you got bit by a dog. And it was when you were 20 years old and this dog came running up and bit you and, and it wasn't any fun. And you go through that whole thing and you're still not particularly feeling wonderful or great, you know. So Hubbard says, you know, you go earlier. You look for an earlier similar time when you were 
And then the, the phrasing is going to be whatever the pre-clear, whatever the person says the phrasing of, you know, the incident or the trauma is. So it might be bitten by a dog or it might be that you got bit or it might be that you had a, you know, a run in with an animal. It could be any kind of description that might fit that general kind of incident. So uh, let's say, you know, there was an, can you recall an earlier similar time when you were bitten? Let's just say, it, let's just put it that way. That's the chain is every, every incident is going to be connected by the fact that there is a bite. There's, you know, you got bitten. So this one is it got bitten by a dog. You go earlier and you go, oh, yeah, well, I got bitten by a, uh, uh, my hamster when I was seven. And you go, great. Okay, let's take a look at that. Yeah, he bit my finger. And you kind of go back. Okay, good. Go back to when you were seven years old. And okay, good. What's happening? And you kind of run through it as though you're re-experiencing it right now in the here and now. Uh, and you go through it and through it and through it, and you're still not feeling really great. And, you know, now you've kind of run the course of that incident, and now it's time to find an earlier one. So the auditor says, is there an earlier similar time when you were bitten? And um, the, the auditor now will probably, unless this is a book one Dianetics session, which is a rather primitive affair, um, where you run Dianetics based on the book, Dianetics to Modern Science Mental Health, Dianetics was updated and now uses an e-meter. And the e-meter might be utilized during the course of the auditing to help the person find the earlier similar incident. Um, the, you know, the, the auditor's looking at the needle on the dial and it might jump from you know, every now and again and uh, in a particular way. And so the auditor goes, oh, what's that thought? That, right there, that, right? And every time the auditor is saying that, Right there, that. What's that thought? See, now you're directing the person. Now the guy goes, oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what that thought is. Okay, just keep looking. Let's just keep looking here, okay? Is there an earlier similar time you got bit? Uh, 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 boink, that. What's that? And the guy goes, oh, uh, I don't... Uh, I don't know, fur, I, you know, I don't know, fur. I get the idea of fur. Okay, great, let's take a look at this. Let's develop this. Let's see what else is there. What about this fur? What color is the fur? Does it, does it feel like any kind of fur? Is it long hair, short hair, medium hair? Like, how would you describe this fur? What, can we, tell me more about it. And you try to, to get more details, more data from the person. And the guy goes, oh man, this fur. Yeah, well, it kind of feels... A little coarse, a little rough, I don't know, but I, I can feel it, so I must have my hand on it or somehow be able to feel it. I don't know, though. I'm not really sure what else I'm seeing here. All right, fair enough. Well, let's just take a look at this for that right there, right? Because the guy, remember, the auditor's looking at the meter. Needles bouncing, right? Okay, what's that? What's that thought? And the guy goes, oh, fur, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's some kind of animal. I think... Uh, Wow, this is kind of weird. What, what's what's so weird? What's tell me? What do you what do you see in there? Well, you know this animal. I see this thing, but I don't understand this at all because I've never seen anything like this. Well, uh, that's totally fine. Listen, just tell me what comes up when I say that. Okay, that right there. What's that thought? Oh, that's the animal, and it's actually got six legs. Really? Okay. Well, let's take a look at that some more. Tell me more about this six-legged furry animal. And slowly, 
details emerge because the auditor demands that details emerge and he's with or without the meter now i'm using the meter as a as an example here because it's often used this way and i wanted to show you how that is used but this works whether you have a meter you know with a needle jumping or not you can still direct the person whether you know whether you're using an e meter you can still say okay well is there an earlier similar time you got bit well i don't know i mean i sort of see this thing with fur okay well, what, what kind of fur? What, is it any kind of fur? Is it white? Is it brown? Is it black? What does it look like? Tell me more about it. Are you above it, below it? What's, you know, what's your relationship to it? And, and in other words, you know, through questioning, you're going to develop this idea. And you don't let it go. You know, you're kind of like, you just, you just keep, gonna, gonna keep working on this thing, right? And, you know, until it works out. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. Maybe the person goes, you know what? This is total bullshit. This isn't a thing. I don't. And I did that. Sometimes stuff would come up and I'd be like, this is nothing. This doesn't make any sense at all. I don't think this is an answer to the question. And after enough time, the auditor might go, all right, well, good. Let's go ahead and dump that. And let's, let me ask you again, is there an earlier some more time you got bit? And now you're going to start the hunt all over again. But, it, uh, but. There is no option to not find an answer to the question. And the auditor is there to direct and guide the pre-clear, using the meter or not, to get an answer to the question. And the technique is that there is an earlier similar incident if the pre-clear in front of you is not happy, the, you know, has a floating needle on the e-meter, uh, is very good indicators, they say. In other words, very happy, smiling, joyous, right? If those things aren't happening, then you're not done with this chain of incidents that you need to go down and go earlier, similar, earlier, similar until you get to what is called the basic. And basic incidents on, um, on things like getting bit are definitely going to be, you know, millions and billions of years down the line. So, uh, so you could get all kinds of uh, mileage on this, right? It's not the case, though, necessarily that you have to run all millions of years of getting bit. You just got to run this thing until you get the floating needle and the, oh, wow, yeah, okay, I feel so much better now kind of thing. Okay, that's what you're going for. And as soon as that's hit, we're done with the chain and it's over. So that's how past lives are, are, in, are in this um, that technique of developing it like a Polaroid picture or, you know, sort of hinting and beating around and trying to find what's there and what's not, um, those things are just standard, any kind of auditing a person might get, those things might come up or be done. There are other things, by the way, that the auditor can do in order to help the person develop this picture or find this incident. For example, using the meter. They can date the incident, right? You might have a person who's having a real hard time trying to find this thing or it's not clearing up or there's something unclear about the incident. And Hubbard said that bad dating or bad timing and also um, not correctly spotting the location of the incident, where it happened, these two things can hang them up and keep them floating there in time and, and keep you stuck to them. So the meter can sometimes be used to isolate what date 
the incident actually occurred on. And it's through a process of narrowing and elimination, greater than, lesser than, asking questions of the meter, that you narrow it down. Um, you might first establish the order of magnitude. Is this date, um, you know, days, months, years, tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, progressively through the orders of magnitude until you get the, the meter to react on the one that you ask. Is it tens of millions of years? Oh, it is tens of millions of years. Okay, I'd like to indicate this date is tens of millions of years ago. So you get working them over until you get it, and then you narrow it down, narrow it down until you get the exact date or time uh, all the way down to the second. You can actually take it from tens of millions of years all the way down to the second of how long ago was this incident. And uh, the person doesn't have to say a thing. The meter is what's used to get the answers to the questions. Uh, the same thing applies in terms of location, right? In which direction is this? How far away is it, right? Where is this located? And uh, the person might say, oh, it was in Australia and feels great. Or they might need it down to the millimeter of, okay, I'd like to, you know, you're using the meter, you narrow it down until you get the exact, you know, half inch location of, in space and time of where this thing happened, right? So the meter is, plays a big part in this is kind of the point I'm trying to get across here. And the, and, and the thing I also would like to say right now about the meter while we're talking about this is that those reactions the auditor is saying, that, that, what's that thought? That's mostly random. That's the crazy thing about that meter is it is a rando meter and it's not measuring your thought, not anywhere near the way that Scientologists are led to believe it does. So all of this is just being built on top of fallacy after fallacy after fallacy. One, the existence of past lives. Two, the workability of the e-meter. Three, the workability of the technique. Four, the fact that in incidents go in chains like this. I mean, all of this stuff is Hubbard inventions or twists and corruption of, you know, standard psychotherapy or, or old school, um, you know, psychoanalysis. So that's where all this stuff kind of comes from. And that's what it looks like. And I hope that answers your question. And let me know if you want any more information about that. Jonathan Perry, from what I have deduced by watching you and Aaron Smith-Levin and others, I can only assume there are Scientologists that are monitoring all this material and watched Going Clear and have to spy on Leah Remini's podcast and anyone talking out about Scientology, maybe even go as far as to have to transcribe them in a report. What I'm wondering is who gets to be exposed to this and what would they make of it? I would think that obviously they would think of you guys as liars and SPs and would not believe one word you said. But what happens when they get to OT3 or 7 or 8 and have watched the Jason Begay video and see that they were being completely accurate? How can they be so hardcore to not question it? Someone has to be sitting in the room writing reports on everything you say? I could be wrong, but it makes me wonder. Anyways, thanks. Hey, Jonathan, thank you for this. And I am not 100% sure that there is somebody monitoring every single one of my Q&A episodes and videos and all of that, in addition to everything Karen and Tony and 
everybody else, you know, Aaron, Smith Levin, and all the other creators out there who put stuff up is of obviously Leah and Mike. Now, I'm pretty, I'd say with 100% surety that Leah and Mike's podcast is monitored quite closely, but I just don't know what kind of manpower the church puts forward in terms of monitoring little old me, because especially over the years, a lot of my content is not even Scientology-related, um, or only, only distantly so. But I believe that there are probably um, people who volunteer or who work for the Office of Special Affairs to do that kind of monitoring work. Actually, I think when it comes to the real monitoring stuff, I think that's all done pretty much in-house, um, not volunteer work. I think the Sea Org guys do that stuff. And I know for sure that it is a very small group of people who are doing that monitoring because they can't let just any old person do it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Office of Special Affairs. And we have talked about this in the past. And I've done in, I did an interview with a woman who actually worked in the Office of Special Affairs for many years. Actually, I've done a couple interviews, one with Karen De La Carriere. We talked about OSA. She worked in OSA. And then also this uh, other set of interviews on the Scientology experience. And um, those were both, it made it pretty clear, talking to those uh, folks who worked, worked in OSA, that um, you have to want to work there. You don't just get assigned to work in the Office of Special Affairs as a Sea Org member. And remember that everybody in OSA is a Sea Org member. They're not just regular Scientologists or staff members. Staff, they do have staff who work in the, in the Office of Special Affairs at all the churches, but we're talking about at the monitoring level, at the level where, you know, this kind of, where they're policing and stuff. And that kind of thing is done by the Sea Org mostly. So, um, okay, so you have to want to be there. And you have to already be hardcore as a Scientologist. They don't just let, you know, any old person into the Office of Special Affairs. They need people who are loyal because they're going to see things and they're going to hear things that your regular average Scientologist is not going to see or hear. Um, but let's be clear that the Scientology mindset is one of, uh, it's a savior mindset. It's a, it's, a, it's a belief set or an ideology or a religion that believes that it has the truth with a capital T and everything else in the world is tainted, corrupted, or just flat out wrong. Everything. Scientology to Scientologists is the only thing in the entire universe capable of freeing man and releasing us from the trap of this physical universe. You know, this, this thing we're all stuck in with these bodies and this mess and all this crap. And this is their viewpoint. And when you get into a dedicated headspace about that, it takes over your life. So this is your primary belief. This is the, the, the way you view the entire world. This is the lens through which you view it. So you're not giving any credence or credibility to people like me. I'm the bad guy. Leah's the bad girl. Mike's the bad guy. Tony's the bad guy. Aaron's the bad guy. We're the enemy. We're not people to be listened to. We are people to be monitored. 
We are people to be watched and harassed and shut up. We are the people who need to be shut down. That's who we are. So keep that attitude in mind, right? This is every Scientologist believes that about us. So, and, and especially the Sea Org. Oh my God, the Sea Org hates my guts. Uh, there is no one in the Sea Org who thinks I'm a cool guy. Not anymore. They all hate me. So, you know, that's kind of where that's at. So they're not going to listen to my words and go, huh, Shelton has a point. I'm not going to do that. And as far as the OT material goes, you asked an interesting thing. You said, what happens when they get to OT3 or 7 or 8 and have watched the Jason McGay video? They don't get to OT3 or 7 or 8. They're already there. The people who monitor the internet have to be OTs for the most part because we spew OT data. I've talked about the L's. I've talked about all the OT levels. I've talked about superpower, the key to life, uh, rollback, the truth rundown. All of those are confidential. The OT levels especially are the most, you know, powerful of that stuff as far as Scientology is concerned. But all of those things are confidential. Very few people in Scientology have experience with all of those things. And if they do, they are upper-level Scientologists. And those guys are not a dime a dozen. There are not lots of them. So they're a little, being few and far between, they have to, they have a small, you know, kind of cohort of these people. And these are the people they rely on in order to do this kind of monitoring work. Um, they could theoretically get people um, to do stuff, you know, for like amends and stuff like that. But generally speaking, they're not going to do security work with people who are in trouble with the church or doing amends or doing some kind of makeup project. They need people who they're going to who are trustworthy and loyal for obvious reasons. So, um, so that's why. There's probably a fairly significant backlog if they mean to be monitoring all my stuff. And, the, and what I'm saying is how they go about doing it. And as far, it's the best of my knowledge This everything I'm saying is true. Um, then they're probably quite a bit backlogged, you know, because I produce a lot of content, <laughs> at least on my channel. Uh, who knows on the other stuff? But that's my conjecture about it based on uh, what I do know and have seen and, and learned and knew about OSA while I was in the Sea Org. So I hope that, um, you know, I hope that clarifies it for you. Thanks for asking. Mike Flores. This is totally a non-religious type question, but I suppose it applies to literally everything we believe is a fact. I'm truly just interested in the technical aspect of the word fact and how it is applied in the world. I use Merriam-Webster as my source for word definitions, though Oxford Dictionary is about the same. I have a premise that you don't know for a fact what date you were born on. It's my opinion. Our parents can know our true birth date. However, we as individuals can only believe we know our own birth date based on information from others. We cannot prove when we were born without belief, nor have first-hand knowledge of the date we were born on, so it does not fit the dictionary definition of a fact. If you believe you know for a fact when you were born, please explain your reasoning. Okay, Mike, thank you for this epistemological sort of philosophical question here we're going to talk about. 
facts and beliefs and, and what are these things. And I've tackled this stuff years ago and, and looking at it again newly now, it's, it's always a little bit of a brain twister messing around with this stuff. I try to keep it simple and I try not to go down philosophical rabbit holes. And there are a lot of rabbit holes to go down when it comes to the debate or the ideas of facts and beliefs or opinions, ideas, attitudes, emotions, all these various things that are part of our experience. To uh, So to, to get right to the point here so that I don't go wandering off into uh, the hinterlands, you challenged me on this premise that you have about a birth date. And you do not believe uh, or you do not have a factual knowledge, I guess uh, you're saying here. Um, uh, if, you, if you believe you know for a fact when you were born, please explain your reasoning. Okay, if I believe I know for a fact. Okay, well, I do know for a fact when I was born. And the basic problem that I have with the argument you've presented as you've written it, whether you intended this or not, all I have to go on is how you wrote it. And the way you wrote it basically implies or, or infers that a fact is something that has to be part of your lived experience and, um, and within your living memory in order for it to be a fact, because you certainly did experience your birthday and you experienced it on your birthday. So you did have a lived experience of that, but you're claiming because you can't remember it, it can only be a belief and it can't be a fact. I would challenge that idea or that premise because there are all kinds of things that we take as facts that we have not had lived experience of and have no memory of whatsoever. I um, take it as a fact that George Washington existed as a real person, just like I exist as a real person. I, I, I take it as a fact, not a belief, that George Washington existed. Um, the reason that I take it that way is because the threshold of evidence that satisfies my requirements of, of the threshold of belief, of, of acceptance, I guess I should say, really, just to differentiate it from belief, um, acceptance of a fact, of a true thing, of a thing that is either true or false. There's, you know, there's not a lot of gradation to a fact. It is, it is, it is. So, um, so I take it that it is true that George Frank, or that, uh, sorry, George Washington lived. Um, the reason I do this is because the mounds of evidence um, from his picture on a $1 bill to stories I heard as a child to pictures of his teeth to pictures of him to uh, tales of his exploits to firsthand accounts of interactions with him to his own writings, uh, which we have available to us. All of these things combine in a, you know, to create an evidence-based case of factualness. It's true. He lived. We can prove it. We can prove it with all this evidence. That's what makes it a fact. It's not an opinion. It's not a belief. Okay. Remember, I sort of said, um, you know, beliefs exist in your head and are infinitely malleable and changeable. Facts are true whether you believe them or not. Opinions are, you know, are, are a dime a dozen. There's, there's millions of them, and, and they are right, wrong, or neither. Uh, facts tend to be in the realm of, you know, right or wrong. Um, 
but the point I wanted to make there, of course, was the was the evidence base, right? You can the 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 decision point on a fact, on accepting a fact as a fact, is your threshold of evidence, right? Your threshold of when am I going to accept this as true or not? What do I need to see? What do I need to hear? What do I need to experience in order for this to be accepted for me as an as a as an absolute objective true thing? Um, I think that threshold varies from person to person and subject to subject, right? Atheists, for example, have a rather hardcore idea of evidence and facts when it comes to the existence of God um, that believers do not, right? Believers have faith, and for them, their faith is the fact. And that's kind of how most believers, as I've experienced and talked with them, but, you know, look at their faith is the faith is the factual thing that gives them their belief in this higher power and the and the fact of their faith is incontrovertible i mean it's right there it's it's you know it's it, it, they do have faith that's a factual statement what they have faith in whether that faith is justified or rational or reasonable or not is a whole nother thing right but the fact of their faith is not a question um Anyway, that's about as deep or far, you know, whatever involved as I think I need to get with answering that without going off on some epistemological tangent or something. But, um, but that's my reasoning. As far as when I was born, kind of the same thing as the George Washington example. I have a birth certificate. I have a photo, evidence of my mom holding me. I have my mom telling me. I have my dad telling me. They were both there. Of course, I was there. <laughs> I mean, I clearly was born. As far as the day I was born on, um, I have evidence. And the evidence that I have is pretty convincing evidence, right? I've literally contacted the hospital where I was born and got them to send me a new birth certificate. So it's not just some old, you know, crumbly piece of paper. I've got a new one. So... Anyway, for those, for me, for my threshold of acceptance, right, of evidence, that evidence does the trick. And for me, uh, it's a fact. Uh, it's not a belief. It's not something I have to question or wonder about. Or, you know, if somebody were to challenge me, I could provide them with this evidence, show it to them, convince them in the same way I've been convinced. And there you go, right? Um, it's not necessarily that facts are relative to one person or another. In other words, your facts and my facts can't be wildly different. When I talk about this threshold of acceptance, I'm talking about how individuals treat information. The objective exterior reality of the factualness of a thing exists whether you accept it or not. So, you know, we could go there, we could take it to that level, but I just want to say that and kind of step away from it and hope that that communicates what I'm trying to communicate. If it doesn't, if I'm off somehow or I'm missing something, Mike, go ahead and let me know. Um, but that's my answer to your question. Steve Wood, what do Scientologists think about getting the COVID shot? Are they for it or against it? I asked a Scientologist I know, and he said he was probably not going to get it, even if he had the opportunity which I thought might be his way of saying it might go against Scientology policy. What are your thoughts? Hey, Steve, thanks for this question. Um, you're asking a kind of a yes-no binary, and the fact is that I really don't know how all Scientologists are going to deal with the COVID vaccine. 
I know some of them are quite anxious to get it and will, and others not so much so. Scientologists tend to be conspiracy-minded. And so we see Scientology, at least and Scientologists, like, for example, Kirstie Alley on Twitter, as, a, as the most prominent example of this, tweeting out conspiracy-minded tweets about the vaccine, about COVID, about the um, general situation, about the government, et cetera, and, um, and pretty nutty stuff. So that tends to indicate to me that the conspiracy-mindedness of Scientology is still very much alive and well. And that means that most of them are probably very doubtful or unsure about whether they would trust a vaccine coming from uh, any government. Hubbard was rabidly anti-government and um, very libertarian, kind of, you know, deep, uh, deeply so in terms of attitude about how he thought the government, he, he was really against it in, in many, many ways, and he hated taxes. So he dreamed up all these conspiracies and reasons why government was evil and must be destroyed, and that is uh, something he passed on through the, the DNA of Scientology, so to speak. It's, it's rife throughout the lectures, throughout the writings. Hubbard is constantly ragging on government institutions, taxes, medical industry as a whole, he hated medicine. He thought it was just a bunch of charlatans and quacks. Um, you know, he, he, he tempered that with, if you're sick or need your bones set or something, go see a doctor. He said they can deal with meat bodies, is how he called it, but they have know nothing about spirituality. They know nothing about what they're really doing, and medicine is just a bunch of backwards idiots, is pretty much Hubbard's attitude about medicine. So... Um, so this gets, again, gets passed on, you know, uh, to the Scientologists, and then they, you know, get this information and go, well, I guess I can't trust government. I guess I can't trust Fauci. I guess I, guess I shouldn't do this because they're all just trying to hurt and harm me, right? Uh, and that's kind of how they, they, they sort of think about these things. But I'm very, I'm very generalizing right now, and, I, and I'm loath to do that. You know what I mean? So it, it, you're going to have different experiences with different Scientologists you're going to run into, in other words. And some of them might be right, ready to go on getting a vaccine, while others are quite sure they're never going to get vaccinated. Um, I think the anti-vax uh, thing, the, the conspiracy theory, it thrives within the world of Scientology, though. So that's, that's what I got for you on that. Matthew Allen. I know this is a hypothetical exercise, but do you ever stop to wonder how the whole movement, quote-unquote, of Scientology might have panned out had it not come under the iron grip of David Miscavige? You've mentioned in the past, for example, that it was at least possible for a lower-level Scientologist to make a bit of profit from the old-style missions. Also, I've been looking through Captain Bill's messages from outer space lately, and they at least have the merit of being highly imaginative, idealistic, and entertaining. Ultimately, of course, they are still yet another set of mad ramblings, but I can't help thinking that following the death of LRH, this kind of material might have flourished if the membership had gone in a more loosely organized direction. Can you imagine such an alternative history such that we would almost be able to see the religion as endearingly kooky today rather than plain old nasty and manipulative? Or have I myself indulged in pure fantasy here? I write all this as a deeply fascinated never in. Thanks, Matthew. Um, you know, I'm all about engaging in flights of fancy and what ifs and, and what, you know, what could have beens. 
But the fact of the matter is that Scientology is and always has been from its inception a destructive cult. It is all about L. Ron Hubbard and his power and authority, and it is all about enriching him. Now David Miscavige took over, and he's the guy who's getting enriched, and he's the one who is now sort of personalized around. Scientology is not exactly a cult of personality, but David Miscavige is the undeniable head personality of Scientology. And he does have his own little, little thing going on in there. But the whole group as a whole is a destructive cult. And let's not ever forget that. Let's also not forget that Scientology, from its inception, is a money-making scam. Now, this is a different tune than I've sung before on this. I've talked in many places uh, on this show and in other videos about how Scientology could settle down, chill out, actually continue to exist not as a destructive cult, how they could you know, shed the OT levels, for example, stop disconnecting people and shunning, knock off the ethics crap, get rid of the Office of Special Affairs, and just concentrate on the lower-level services. If they just did those three things, get rid of OSA, get rid of the ethics crap, including disconnection, and, and chuck the OT levels and just deal with the lower level stuff, then you would have uh, a different setup. Then you would, then it would probably, then you could move it in a direction of non-destructive cult. But you're still stuck with this money-making scam thing. And that's a thing because Scientology is not a body of truth. It's a body of plagiarized common sense principles and nonsense. It's a hodgepodge of nonsense, including science fiction, fantasy nonsense, psychotherapy nonsense, uh, pseudo-therapy, intensively so, and a whole body of literature that is based on the most false premises about people and life and the universe that you can imagine. So at the end of the day, there really isn't a whole lot salvageable or useful in that body of crap. And so if you ask me, you know, okay, let's imagine this flight of fancy where Miscavige doesn't take over. Okay, well, we've talked about that before. What if Miscavige didn't take over? Well, a body of people were running the show already before Miscavige came along. Hubbard had gone off into hiding. People were, he was still running the show as far as senior orders and directions, but he had a whole, a whole cohort of people, messengers, and, and uh, he had uh, the, uh, the Guardian's office was, was still going. This is 1970s. This is going all the way back to the 1970s. And then the Guardian's office blows up and, you know, Miscavige takes over and all of that. That's the stuff that went on in the 80s. So let's say that didn't happen. Let's say the Guardian's office blew up and then Miscavige somehow wasn't in the picture. Well, they would have dealt with it in a different way. Who knows what would have happened, but had the people who were in charge during that time continued running things, it would not have been, I can say, it would not have resulted in as much of a dictatorial, authoritarian you know, horror show, but it would still be a destructive cult. And it would still be more damaging than helpful on every front. So knowing that, it's a little hard for me to go on to a kinder, gentler Scientology, right? Because 
The fact is it doesn't really exist that way because that's never been that way. Uh, that's my answer right now. And uh, let me know if you want more, if that, uh, if that satisfies. All right, let's do some flash answers. Travis, what character would you be in the Dungeons and Dragons universe? What a fun question. I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was awesome. I have always loved D&D. I think this answer has changed over time because I think as a teen and young person, I would have said a, a thief. I was kind of into being a rogue kind of character. I've never been, you know, a fighter, right? A big, big battle barbarian guy, uh, kind of, obviously. <laughs> so now, though, I have concentrated so much of my life and attention on study and learning and knowledge. I think I would be uh, much more... Um, in the direction of magic, of, of using, of being a magic user or a wizard or something. I think that's, I think that's the direction I would go. Mr. Marathon, 1989. Chris, are you familiar with the five elements of post-crisis adjustment, namely denial, anger, blame, acceptance, resolution? Have you gone through these yourself? Also, where is Marty Rathbun on this chart? Is his resolution, quote unquote, to take a payout from Scientology and pretend to support something he does not? Thank you for this question. I'm putting it into the flash answers because I wanted to kind of compact my thoughts on this really quickly and say, I believe I have gone through all of those phases and that those phases are not necessarily something that you just go through once. You might check out my podcast this week about the onion layers that have been stripping off of my head, I guess you could say. Uh, so to, to talk more about that, I think my podcast this week is actually kind of all about this. Um, and I think that this is a cyclic kind of thing as far as going through these phases. Um, I believe that the person who came up with that also said something similar. Now, as far as Marty Rathbun goes, I don't know that Marty Rathbun has even touched these things. I mean, denial, perhaps, anger, maybe, um, in many ways, I suppose. But, um, you know, blame, except I don't know. I, you know, I don't know Marty on a personal level, and it's really not fair for me to try to judge the guy from this distance and with the amount of time and all that that's gone on since then. On something this personal, I really wouldn't want to make a guess. Um, I don't know that his resolution is to take a payout from Scientology. I, I you know, Marty's his own kind of creature, and uh, I won't, I won't say a whole lot more about it than that. Mark P. I recently watched Star Trek Discovery, first two seasons only. I noticed today in my Netflix DVD queue, yes, that is still a thing, and yes, I still subscribe, that season one of Picard is on the way for me to watch on DVD. My question for you is, have you watched either or both of these newest Star Trek series, and what are your thoughts on them? How would you rate all the TV-only Star Trek shows from best to worst, and maybe why? Okay, Mark. Um... I'm going to try to cut to the chase on this one because I'm a big fan of Star Trek, but as I've mentioned before, really, it's I'm an original series guy. I go back. I mean, I grew up in the 70s on reruns of the original series from the 60s. That's my Star Trek. And my Star Trek is also that same cast in the movies, the original Star Trek 1 through, I think, 6. And uh, those movies are, to me, that Star Trek. Um, Next Generation, or uh, not a big thing for me. I, I, I watched a little bit of it, wasn't so impressed. Uh, as far as Star Trek Discovery, the latest series, I watched the first three episodes and turned it off. It wasn't my Star Trek. 
It is not necessarily a bad show. Production values were quite high. I wasn't too impressed with the writing, but again, that's me. Not my Star Trek, right? Um, as far as Picard, I watched the first few episodes of Picard as well. You know, that's building on the whole mythology and backstory of Next Generation. Not my Star Trek. So, you know, yes, I liked some elements of it. Didn't like other elements of it. Um, I, you know, Star Trek means different things to different generations. That much is abundantly clear. And it's interesting. Same with Star Wars. You know, it's interesting. These, these multi-generational series or franchises and how they, and the effects they have on the, on the generations. It's, it's a fascinating little cultural thing, really. Um, anyway, uh, so I have not really watched a lot of the other Star Trek shows because they haven't really appealed to me a whole lot. Um, you know, I watched... Quite a few. I think I watched a full season of um, Star Trek Enterprise uh, with Scott Bakula, and you know that didn't do it for me. I watched um, uh, Deep Space Nine. I watched a, a, about uh, half the first season of Deep Space Nine. wasn't doing it for me. You know, poor production values, poor writing, poor you know just poor scripting, poor story design. I was, wasn't, I, and that's my thing. I'm a big story guy. I'm a writer. I pay a lot of attention to writing. I pay a lot of attention to dialogue, like a lot. And I like what I like. And, um, and I like, for me, the thing about Star Trek is it is uh, the original concept of it, for me, is the, is the most pure concept of Star Trek. And that is that we can get along we can work together, we can tolerate our differences, and we can work in a unified way to conquer the world and the universe rather than each other. And I believe that is Gene Roddenberry's original vision for Star Trek. And that's always been my theme of Star Trek. So I've seen it go off that over these years, and that's what's kind of turned me off on it. When I've been, you know, when I've tried to take up the uh, the next generation or the next episodes of it, kind of a longer flash answer, but um, but there you go. Okay, so that is our show for this week, guys. Uh, thank you very much for your questions; these were fun, and I hope you got something out of my answers. And I will see you guys next week. Be sure to please like and subscribe to this video if that is something that uh, you are want to do. And um, please share news of my channel around the interwebs. I would very much like to grow this channel and grow this show. All right. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.